Hello, and welcome to Student Centricity, Trellis Company's podcast for higher education professionals. I'm your host, Steve Smith. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Brandon Warren, Director of Reentry Services at Lee College and a leader in higher education for incarcerated and system-impacted students. With an EDD in ethical leadership and several years of experience supporting formerly incarcerated higher education students, Dr. Warren joins us to explain how institutions can meet the needs and educational goals of this often overlooked group. Dr. Warren, thank you for joining us today. Yes, sir. No problem. It's a pleasure to be here. To begin, why is it important to support this particular student population? Well, an easy way to think about it is that, uh, at least according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics uh, back in 2009, about 95% of people who are incarcerated will be released one day. You know, if we've gotten, we've got something like one and a half, two million people currently incarcerated, 95% of those people are going to go home. Uh, And so historically, prison has been, you know, a violent place. Uh, There's not a lot of growth and development going on there. Most of the time when people go to prison, they learn or pick up more bad habits. Uh, And education for those on the inside is crucial to changing their lives. So one of the things that is always pointed out in these discussions is the recidivism rate that I can expand on. The point that people are coming back to prison upon release or getting rearrested or reconvicted just a return to criminal behavior upon release, that is significantly reduced through educational programs, college in particular. So the reduction of recidivism is one really important idea that is usually dominates the conversation. Another would be that the majority of the people who are serving time in prison come from what we often refer to as historically marginalized groups. So most of them are coming from impoverished families, non-white families. So for colleges in particular, or schools which promote things like DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, the population of students in prison are in all of those categories. So those are two sort of easy answers that are um, often discussed in these. But I, I would also point out that just the punishment, you know, going to prison, the punishment is, is a loss of freedom. But oftentimes we historically, we think about being violent and most of the time, I think the public sees the punishment as ongoing and includes much more than just the absence of freedom. So it also often means the absence of educational opportunities, medical access, food, quite a few things that are not actually entailed in punishment, but uh, can almost border on inhumane. So education is one of those things I think is important for human beings. The absence or lack of resources shouldn't be a part of the punishment, you know, when people are going to prison. So that's very uh, interesting because, you know, you're right. Most of us who don't have experience with the prison system really don't understand what's going on in there and what the reality of the incarcerated person is. You know, you mentioned the fact that they have lost their freedom, which is the technical punishment, 
But often the punishment extends further than that. It includes, you know, losses to ordinary life skills and life essential benefits like healthcare and education and all kinds of things that just compound the problem and make the person even further behind as a productive person in the society. So it really does sound very, very urgent to make education available to the population. But let me pause for a second, because you did mention a technical term, recidivism. What do we mean by recidivism exactly? What is it and what do we need to do about it? I mean, how do, what is the public policy issue about recidivism and you know, what are the implications with it for you know, higher education? Sure. So recidivism can be measured in a few different ways. It, broadly speaking, is a return to criminal behavior upon release from prison. What is defined as criminal behavior can be rearrest, it can be reconviction, or it can be reincarceration. So somebody who gets rearrested, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be found guilty or reincarcerated. So those are three usual outcomes that they're looking for when being released from prison. The other important detail is the time frame in which people are tracking those who are released from prison. Usually, the most common time frame in which a recidivism study or stat is published is three years. So three years from release from prison If a person passes that marker, you know, then they're considered to have been successful. Sometimes it'll be lower. You know, certain grants might fund a recidivism study and they want to know what's the recidivism rate within a year of release from prison or the federal government has done one as long as nine or 10 years. But that makes a real difference in how the statistics are reported. So the reason that's important is because it costs a lot (laughs) to incarcerate people. There was a study put out in 2013 and and redone in in 2018, which estimated that for every dollar spent towards education in prison, saved $4 in reincarceration expenses. So education generally, higher education in particular, uh, reduces the likelihood of people coming back to prison. And so just from a practical perspective, it's a money-saving endeavor. But Most of the time in national statistics, you might hear that the recidivism rate is over 60 or 70 percent, which is pretty grim. It's a pretty depressing statistic. You might get the impression that that means, you know, one out of two people is coming back to prison pretty quickly upon release. But because of the different ways that that can be measured and the time requirement, most of those uh, national level statistics are sort of muddled. Um, In Texas, it's reported according to reincarceration. So not re-arrest. I mean, they report it in re-arrest and reconviction, but most of the time we're talking about reincarceration. Uh, it's much lower than the usual national level. And people who participate in education, it's going to be even lower. So enabling people to become successful upon release from prison, not return to criminal behavior is one of the most important reasons for giving people the opportunity to attend education generally, but college in particular. With those numbers, it sounds like the benefit is really undebatable, you know, right. four to one. And if that's what it takes, then it sounds like we should be focusing education as a major policy with incarcerated persons. But let me ask you, you know, we're talking about college. Is every person incarcerated eligible to go to college or are some of them still needing to complete high school? And 
is there having students complete high school and going to college really part of the same policy? Or are they two separate things? Right. So no, not everyone who is currently incarcerated is eligible to go to college because the majority of people incarcerated dropped out or were arrested or kicked out in the high school range. Sometimes you will see that uh, the average educational level is eighth grade or ninth grade. So high school level is usually where it stops. And so GED programs are a really important component of correctional education across the country. Uh, most of the time, acquiring a GED is, uh, is a requirement. It's something that a person uh, has to do, like, for example, to make parole. So uh, most people in prison are coming in at the high school level. But once they've earned the GED, then there are different testing measures like any college uh, will give, you know, um, preparatory testing to see if they need to go through developmental classes. And so if there's a college program on site, then they will have their own sort of testing measures to see if they're eligible to get into the college. But no, just as a rule, not everybody there is eligible. Um, but for those college and prison programs that exist, they have certain requirements. So, for example, our students will go through different testing measures that the prison itself has in addition to our own. And then if they need to take certain developmental classes, those are provided. So as a rule, college is a, well, it's post-secondary education, so it's going to be more difficult and uh, much more limited than the GED programs. There's college programs all over the country that are serving in prison, but for a variety of reasons, they've decreased over the last 25 years. And so what you do see is mostly GED programs. So let's talk about what needs to happen to increase the college services for incarcerated persons. So talk a little bit about what you do at Lee College. What does your program look like? And then maybe generalizing what kinds of things can other colleges do to maybe get that equation back in order? You said that educational programs in prisons have declined. What might help get them back up and running and helping, you know, support students more? One thing I wanted to mention earlier when we summarized some of the reasons why we ought to support the students and I mentioned the idea that for every dollar spent towards college, it saves something like $4 in reincarceration expenses. And so, you know, your response was like, well, it's, it's obvious we should be doing this. And, and that's right. I think for most people, it is obvious that at least from a financial perspective, education is, you know, the way to go. But one of the reasons that it's always had a hang up is because of the perspective the general public has about punishment, which was one of the things I alluded to in the beginning, is that most of the time if we're thinking about education for people in prison, our response is, well, they don't deserve it, or we shouldn't waste money in that area, because we're, I think, oftentimes conflating their lack of resources or opportunities for things like education with a part of the punishment. Uh, so it's providing that kind of education to people in prison has never gone well in the public, but those things have been changing pretty rapidly in the last 10 years, 10 or 15 years. That's a great point because, you know, even though the, the math seems exactly almost obvious, right? there is sort of... Um, maybe an emotional content or a misunderstanding content or something like that going on that muddies the waters here. Yeah, and that's understandable. I mean, especially for people who have been victims of crime and just the way that we often perceive somebody who commits 
crime. We have a, a sort of knee-jerk reaction to what we are willing to do for them because, you know, they broke the rules of society. But it is often a conflation of the punishment phase with basic access to things like medical help and food and, and education. And if we can separate those two, unless a person is actually going to make the argument that the absence of these resources is in fact a part of the punishment. But if they're not going to do that, then we need to separate those things uh, and look at the benefits of education just from a financial perspective for taxpayers. If a college is actually going to start delivering the programs how does that work? What do you what really needs to happen operationally to go into a prison and start operating college classes? I mean, what do you do at Lee and what have you seen other colleges do and what could colleges that aren't doing it now do to get started? Right. So at Lee, we have been offering college level education in the Texas prison system since the 1960s. So we're one of three or four across the country that have consecutively offered college programming in prison that long. So we are different in the way that we provide education in a number of ways. But I think many of the programs across the country are delivering face-to-face -face instruction. So they're going inside the prison. Instructors, professors are going inside the prison and hosting classes in a classroom setting, just like you would find at any sort of college. They have homework, they have tests, quizzes, but that leads to some of the important differences, um, and I can get to those. A lot of the colleges are just doing what you would imagine. They're doing face-to-face -face instruction where they go in and they lecture. They are, most of them are able to use PowerPoints, provide the textbooks and the required readings to do classes. For Lee College, we've been doing that. We offer eight different associates of applied science degrees. We are on nine different prison units which is also something that's not normal. Many of the programs across the country are on one or two units. At the moment, we're on nine different units delivering face-to-face -face instruction. As far as like re-entry, that's new. So the re-entry component, helping the students upon release, pursue their education, finish their education, find employment, housing, that began with my role in 2017 for Lee College. And at the time, None of the other college and prison programs in Texas were offering any sort of help for the students upon release from prison, not because the colleges in particular didn't want to, but because they weren't really allowed to. The prison system, the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, is still the authority. Colleges are under the authority of the prison system, and they did not want anybody who is involved with the prison system as a contract employee or employee to have anything to do with someone who had served time in prison, you know, outside of the prison context. So alumni groups for formerly incarcerated college students, reentry groups was just not something any of the colleges did. But things began to change and Lee College hired me to develop a program like reentry. Now, other colleges have programs like this in, in New Jersey and California and in Florida. And for Lee College, our main focus is to help them find work and either continue their education or finish it if they were released before they uh, completed their education. But that entails also things like finding housing, uh, helping them get identification like a social security card or birth certificate. It might entail helping them try to navigate repayment of child support payments or something like that. There's just so much involved in trying to help somebody once they're released from prison. But our dominant focus is to help them acquire gainful employment at best, it would be relative to the education they receive from us uh, and also to pursue their education if they want. 
what other colleges can do is it depends on the, the, the degree to which they want to get involved. So sometimes you hear about the idea of ban the box. There's something called ban the box, ban the box initiative all around the country where people are advocating for legislation that would take the question off of job applications, which asks if you have ever been convicted of a felony. And they have a number of reasons why they think that should be taken off. Well, what uh, I didn't realize until just a few years ago is that there are many colleges which also will not allow students to enroll in their college. They can't attend certain universities and colleges because they have a criminal background. When I got out of prison, I did not experience that. Yeah, I don't even remember if they asked the question or if it wasn't even a big deal. Here in Texas, I didn't personally encounter that, but I know in other states, it's uh, barred people from attending college. And so there's a band the box movement for the employment area where they are trying to get employers to remove that box from applications. And then there's a band the box movement for colleges, which is encouraging colleges either not to ask the question or not to allow it as a, a part of a factor that would prevent them from enrolling in the school. So there's been some successful issues passed in Louisiana and Washington, just different places around the country. So one of the things that a college can do, you know, at a minimum is just realize that if they're going to disqualify somebody from enrollment on the basis of a criminal conviction, that's going to stop a lot of talent, a lot of really good quality students from becoming a part of their school. So I'm a part of a network across the country that of people like myself who served time in prison, but now have PhDs, doctorates, or are lawyers and professors, something that is not traditionally associated with somebody who spent time in prison. But if those colleges in particular had banned everyone with a criminal conviction, then myself and others, we would have never made it this far. So at a minimum, they can just realize that that question is preventing a lot of qualified students. But another thing a, a school can do, a little bit more intensive in involvement, is to allow or, or start student groups on their campuses, uh, which consist of people who have that kind of a background. In California, some guys that I know started a student group at UC Berkeley called the Underground Scholars. It was started by two guys who had spent quite a bit of time in the prisons in California, and they both ended up at UC Berkeley, met each other, and started this student group, which was successful enough that it is at all, if not most, of the UC campuses in California. So UC Santa Barbara, UC Davis, all have a, a student group uh, called the Underground Scholars, which consists of formerly incarcerated students. When I went to Houston Baptist University upon my release, I didn't tell people about my background. I was on parole. I didn't not that I didn't want people to know. It's just not something that I led with in a discussion of who I am. But I knew that there were other people there who had also served time in prison. But if we would have had a student group or some kind of networking opportunities, that would have really helped facilitate our progress through the school. Because if you think about the people coming to prison who, you know, they stopped in high school, then they go to prison, they get a GED, and then they enroll in a college program. Still, their whole educational experience is nothing like you would imagine the traditional four-year college experience where students live in dorms and they're part of student government groups. For somebody who's been in prison, it's nothing like that. And so for a university to have or support a group of people who have criminal uh, backgrounds would be 
really beneficial in understanding a certain population in the in the school that you know just doesn't often manifest itself. A little more intense is they could do things like make it easier for people with sort of checkered educational backgrounds to transfer into the schools or realize that people coming out of prison fit into a category of low income students because they they haven't had an income, they haven't had a job. So transportation and things like that, uh, tuition for books is going to be difficult for them. But at best, they could start a prison program, start offering some sort of educational programs inside a local prison. And there's a number of things that schools would want to do before in order to get that started. Probably the first thing they want to do is actually talk to the prison officials. There are different ways that it can be done. You can go straight to a senator. You can go straight to the top and say, you know, we'd like to uh, offer some college programs somewhere within, you know, a reasonable driving distance of our faculty and staff. Uh, What would be a good location? But talking to the actual wardens of the prisons you have in mind and the prison officials is important because you're not going to go in there and just offer college level education classes inside a prison like you would out here in what we refer to as the free world. There are a lot of different variables that change the context and the circumstances of college education. But that would be probably the number one thing is talk to some prison officials, but you can also be connected with people like myself at Lee College to just ask questions and find out, you know, how we do what we do. And different states are going to have different laws and policies. They're going to have different relationships with the prison system. And all that's going to affect what the classroom experience looks like. I would encourage them to move forward with, you know, starting prison programs. This is very interesting because when we're talking about prison programs, you know, we might be thinking about the program inside the institution itself. But you're seeming to weight the full educational continuum equally. In other words, it's not just the program that happens in the institution. It's the program programs support that you offer the student after he or she leaves the institution. And it sounds to me like you feel that it's both and when you talk about college for incarcerated students. It's what happens in the facility, but also what happens outside back when they're reintroduced into regular campus work. Right. If you can imagine the person being released, let's assume they finish the degree inside and they're released. Well, then it's very similar to how a university would prepare or network with their alumni. You know, most colleges try to help students find work, for example. They'll host networking and sessions or they'll host job fairs on site. So if you think of a student who was enrolled in your program in the prison and then they get out, well, they would benefit from the same kinds of alumni services that you would have, you know, on your average college campus. Uh, The same with transferring. You know, many community colleges are in the business of helping their students transfer into the university setting. And so also with students who graduate from a community college in prison, they might, like I did, pursue a bachelor's and a master and move through the academic ranks. So in fact, that's how I distinguish my two divisions of student services as I actually see the people on the inside as students, which would equate to student services, student affairs on a regular college campus, and the students who have been released, even if they have not yet graduated, I just consider them alumni. And so I mimic the kinds of services that would be provided to students and to alumni in, my, um, in the overall program of reentry. 
You mentioned that when a college actually, though, sets up classes inside the institution, it needs to think about them differently than they might think of the classes they offer at the regular campus. So I'm imagining that you're going to have classrooms with people attending, you know, one hour, two hour classes and things in the institution like you might at the campus. But are there limits? I mean, can you have scientific labs in the facility? Are there uh, technological limits? Are there time limits? What are just sort of the day-to-day things about uh, offering class in the institution and the students attending the class compared to, say, what it looks like at the local college campus? Right. You know, keeping in mind that the prison is a confined space, uh, there are limitations, limitations, limitations. Uh, There are a number of limitations. So, for example, you're right, they're not going to have access to things like the Internet. Federal prisons are offering a little more access to Internet. Some state prisons are, like in Ohio. But you can assume that the state prison that you're going to work within they're not going to have access to internet. So most of the communication done between professors and students or students and administration is through email or internet, you know, learning management systems like Blackboard or Canvas. And none of that is able to function in the school. So it's, it would, if you set yourself back into like the 90s, and you know, the 1990s and before, where it's just face-to-face instruction and you have phone calls and that sort of thing, that's the, the setting that you would imagine. So a lot of the things we take for granted with regard to email and internet access is just not a part of the educational context. So that's going to lead to a few other things like classroom space. Classroom space is going to be limited. The prison is not usually have a separate college space or area. You're going to be sharing classes with, you know, like uh, the chapel and religious programming. You're going to be sharing classroom space with the GED classrooms or the therapy sessions, you're going to end up sharing space, which means you're going to be limited in your scheduling and your time. For the students themselves, any number of things can happen that they're not responsible for. They don't have any control over that instructor out here. Again, I keep using the free world. I'm just distinguishing between the two contexts an instructor out here might not tolerate. So for example, if students are late, I mean, it could be their fault, but most of the time it's probably not. It's probably because they were behind locked doors and the officers decide when to open and close those. They have their own schedule, their own way to function within the prison to make things work. And school is not the top priority. Security will always be the top priority. And so if there's a an education-related service or function that is interfering with security protocols, then the educational program is going to lose out. So students might be late. Students might not show up to class because the prison went on lockdown. They went on lockdown maybe because of COVID or a riot or administrative issues. And so when you've got a 15-week semester with 13 weeks of actual classroom instruction in the prison context, that might be greatly reduced because of the power went out during a storm or, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why uh, you won't get the same kind of classroom time 
or the students are are limited in some way, like their textbooks could have been confiscated by the security officers for a number of reasons, but they didn't have any control over it. So now they lost their textbooks, they can't do their homework. Or they may have been shipped to another prison unit for a medical reason. You know, they don't have any control over those things. So there, there are a lot of things that the circumstances inside the prison just change the dynamic of how classes are run and, you know, what kind of resources they have access to. A lot of the college programs, for example, are paying for the textbooks for their students. In a regular college setting, the professor can choose different textbooks every semester if he wants because it's the student's responsibility to buy those books. But in the college and prison programs, a lot of times the colleges will purchase the textbooks, which means they're probably going to use those textbooks over and over, sometimes for years. So the students aren't going to have access to things like internet and email, and then they might have outdated resources. And you mentioned science labs. Um, yeah, <laughs> there's not a lot of scientific uh, lab work going on. And whatever is happening has to go through quite a bit of security approvals. Whether you're you know, doing a geology class, like we offer a geology class, biology class, anything you're trying to bring in has to go through security protocols. And it's not impossible. It's just much more difficult to make those sort of things happen. I can imagine, though, that if I'm a faculty member working in the institution, that some of these additional challenges or realities take me out of my normal paradigm and might really enrich my own perspective as a teacher and as a service provider. I mean, do you ever hear from the faculty about how they have learned more about themselves or about their profession as teachers by working in this context? Oh, yes. Most of the time, in fact, I'm trying to recall a time that might contradict what I'm about to say, but most of the time, instructors involved with these programs love it. I mean, they're frustrated with all of the limitations. They're they're actually experiencing many of the things the students are experiencing because they're being affected by lockdowns. And in Texas, like there's no air conditioning in the prisons. Like, so they're being affected by these things as well. And so they see, for example, the students' ambitions and their perseverance going through all these obstacles to try and, you know, achieve their education. So there's a lot of motivation on behalf of the instructors to continue doing what they're doing because they realize, number one, the students crave learning and being a part of the educational system, they value it so much. And, you know, most teachers, that's what they they love. They want to teach, they want to provide and and help students learn and grow. And these students want to learn and grow too. (laughs) Um, And so most of the time, they do really appreciate what's going on. And they have a better perspective on just people's life situations that they may not have uh, been privy to beforehand. So I want to talk a little bit about just the big picture here about public policy. You know, you just mentioned a specific operational implication, but I'm sure it flows from policy, which is there's no air conditioning in Texas prisons. That's a pretty big thing, you know, at a policy level. And it makes me think the way a government, a society uses the restraining of freedom as a form of control or punishment is a sort of a collective decision and how we administer that punishment in the institution and how we administer that punishment after the institution. You know, all of these are, are policy issues, but they're also not static because 
I can remember, you know, back in the three strikes you're out era of the early 90s, where the idea was, if we're super intolerant of crime, we will restrict crime. But it didn't really look like that policy worked. And so now most people really don't ascribe to that anymore. So tell us a little bit about how has the idea of incarceration and specifically how it relates to education changed over your career or, let's say, over the last 30 years? Right. So I want to say criminology as a field, criminology, which informs disciplines like criminal justice, really was um, a sort of standstill, I want to say in, in like the 70s, where the idea was just nothing that was being implemented in terms of rehabilitation was working. It didn't seem like people were becoming better citizens or or learning from their mistakes by having been through prison and sort of threw their hands up. Nobody was really clear on what was working. In 1965, the Pell money was allowed to be used. It was the Higher Education Act was allowed to be used for people serving time in prison. So not in the 60s, but over time, there were hundreds of colleges which began to offer these college programs. Well, we know from research going all the way back to the 70s that these educational programs had one of, if not the most significant effect in rehabilitation. If, if you're defining rehabilitation by staying out of prison, staying out of criminal behavior, if that's how you define it, then educational programs have a really significant effect. But in the 90s, in 1994 in particular, as a part of a, like you mentioned, like a tough on crime bill, there were just a number of different things that changed in the 90s with regard to criminal justice. There were, like you mentioned, three strikes rules where people would, you know, get convicted three times and then they'd have to serve life in prison. People were getting 60 year sentences, 90 year sentences for things that other people might have gotten five years for. There was just a lot going on in policy change in the 90s and Pell access was restricted. So in 1994, nobody who was incarcerated was able to make use of Pell funding in order to attend college programs. Uh, at that time, there were upwards of 700 programs across the country in prisons. And within a year or two, that was cut in half because they were dependent on a lot of the, uh, the Pell funding. In 2013, I mentioned one of the studies that was put out by the RAND Corporation, which showed a pretty significant relationship between a reduction in recidivism and education. And so in 2015, under the Obama administration, he allowed or brought back the ability for people incarcerated to access Pell in an experimental way. It was called the Second Chance Pell Experimental Initiative. 67 colleges across the country were allowed to make use of Pell funds for their college programs. And the idea was that they were going to study the effects of people who attended college with recidivism. But it was based on something the RAND study had already told us that the last 30 years of, at that time, at the last 30 years of looking at the relationship between education and incarceration, education had a significant impact. So for those of us who are involved in college and prison programs, we didn't need a second chance Pell initiative to show or prove to anybody that education was going to have such a great impact. We knew that it would. Uh, in 2020, Congress decided to fully restore Pell for people who are incarcerated. So that will go into effect 
next year in uh, 2023. You know, we're myself personally, Lee College generally is, you know, already being um, sort of inundated <laughs> with different programs and colleges who are interested in starting up prison programs and are, you know, just looking for advice on how they might go about starting a prison program in their state or their area. But the 1990s policies, which restricted Pell, you're right, that was a part of the idea that if we just are more tough on crime, if we give them longer sentences and restrict their access to things like education, that that will have a, a deterrent effect. And it really didn't. It didn't have that sort of deterrent effect. But the whole way of looking at criminal justice in terms of deterrent, that's a particular way of understanding criminal justice. What was also allied with that was the punitive understanding or the, the retributive understanding of punishment, that some people deserve certain things, regardless of whether those policies have any effect on deterring crime whatsoever. That is irrelevant. The retributive view of criminal justice sees people as deserving certain punishments on the basis of what they've done. So there's this tension between the retributive view of justice, the rehabilitative, the restorative. There's there's different views of justice behind all of this. And in the 90s, it seemed to be dominated by the retributive view. So now that the Pell Grant is going to be more widely available, a lot of colleges are seeing that it may become more practical for them to offer services in institutions, but many of them are doing this for the first time. You've been doing it since the 1960s, as you mentioned. If colleges want to talk to you about how to get started, how can they reach you or learn more about what your program offers and how they can use some of your lessons learned for their own program? Sure. So the particular campus that I work for is the Lee College Huntsville Center. It's a part of the Lee College. Uh, it's community college in Baytown, Baytown, Texas, which is east of Houston. The Lee College Huntsville Center is actually located in Huntsville, Texas. Uh, you can just do a Google search for Lee College Huntsville Center. Uh, we have a, a web page with some contact information. Our associate vice president is Ms. Donna Zuniga. And then I am director of reentry services. So both of us can be contacted via email. Hers would be dzuniga at lee.edu, D as in Donna, Zuniga at lee.edu. And Lee is just spelled L-E-E. Uh, or mine is bwarren at lee.edu. So B-W-A-R-R-E-N at lee.edu. Or reentry at lee.edu, R-E-E-N-T-R-Y at lee.edu. So Lee College Huntsville Center, we have a webpage uh, with a variety of things there for you to check out, or you can contact us directly. Dr. Warren, this has been a fascinating conversation. I think this is an area of higher education that many of our listeners are aware of, but really don't know much about. I myself have learned so much about policies that affect the lives of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people, the way in which college services uh, need to be very intentional, both in the institution and outside the institution, the way in which faculty need to adjust their own teaching methods to serve incarcerated students, and what higher education can do just to make the path 
easier for people who are leaving institutions to enter the higher education world and be successful. Truly fascinating conversation. We really thank you for your time today. And moreover, we thank you for the work you're doing in this part of higher education. Thank you so much. I I enjoy the work I do, and uh, I enjoyed speaking with you about it. Thanks for listening to Student Centricity. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Student Centricity is produced by Trellis Company, a nonprofit 501c3 corporation with the dual mission of helping student borrowers successfully repay their education loans and promoting access and success in higher education. 